Well, hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Christy Jansen, Chief of Staff at the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Budico, the Academy's President and Founder. And Benjamin Schwartz, our Assistant Producer, is here at the controls. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit dedicated to elevating the consciousness of people in the business community and encouraging business leaders to use their power and influence to take greater responsibility for the communities and the environment their work touches. We are recording this show on December 9th, 2019. Before we get going, I would like to invite our listeners to reach out to us at info at worldbusiness.org. If you have questions or comments about the show today, or if you have anything that you would like for us to discuss on future programs, we would absolutely love to hear from you. As always, you can listen to us on the go using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Blog Talk Radio. Just search World Business Academy. And also, I'd like to remind everyone to check out our weekly radio show and podcast, Solutions News. Send us a note if you'd like to find out how you can listen, and we'd love to have you there. And so with that, Ronaldo, let's jump right into this. Well, thank you. And you know, um, we usually are doing these once every two weeks now, but yes. this, this we should tell people because this is December and it's the holidays, we're right. going to do it all we're in one shot. we all in one, one show and we'll have one. But one. we are going to go back to January and we'll do two yeah. in January. Yep. Okay, great. And, and the reason we like that format, uh, folks, is it gives you more things to comment about. It gives, you, it gives us quicker time to respond to your comments. And we also like it because it keeps us more current. And last but not least, we like it because we can use the second show of the month to do a longer conversation. I'll do a little bit of that today because we're going to have a conversation about the Jones Act, which I'm sure almost nobody knows about, but is an important thing. Yeah, it's discuss. a really interesting Very interesting topic. thing, yeah. Dates from 1920. Okay, so let's just start with a quick rundown. I think the most interesting thing that's happened recently uh, is the fact that we just went through a week, ended December 9th, uh, December, actually December 9th is today, so we ended on December 8th. So for the full week, we had a enormous amount of good news. We had a surprisingly strong jobs report of, of 266,000, which is really, really strong. That's one of the strongest months we've had. All year, I believe, probably second strongest one. Number two, there's a um, there was a story which Trump periodically does where he says, "Oh, I got to deal with coming with China," and I know that nobody believes that on Wall Street, but they use that statement as a way to use it to pump the market. Pump up, yeah. Um, and there's some things going on today actually that they're going to try to do to further pump up the market. They're going to try and push interest rates down again. Now, why that's important is this: we we reported two shows ago. Why is it we turned out to be wrong, because we were, about what would happen to the economy this year? And one of the reasons we were wrong is no one in recorded history had ever done what our government has now done, which is to reduce interest rates even as unemployment is falling and the economy is growing strongly. No one had ever done that before. And it's a, it's a blatant manipulation, because what it did is it pumped, in one short period of time alone, it pumped $720 billion, I think, less than a year, $720 billion of fresh cash, mm -hmm. which does all kinds of things. First of all, it makes the banks richer, which drives stocks up. Mm -hmm. It makes liquidity better, which drives up stocks. It gives you a way to justify what are clearly unsustainable stock market valuations. And so when I analyzed that, I said, gee, that's that's what's going on. They're, they're basically they're buying a better stock market, mm -hmm. but they're paying in a currency that will cause a far worse collapse in the end. So I was asked... Actually, over the weekend by someone at a cocktail party, did I, now that we were wrong last time about, will we continue to be right, wrong rather, and will this work indefinitely, meaning the market will just keep going up and up? And the answer is absolutely no, not even remotely possible. So when's it going to come down or whatever? Well, in the face of the week I just referenced with huge unemployment numbers going up, 266,000, with, uh, by the way, real wages went up 3.1% which was an enormous piece of good news that almost nobody pointed out. And the third thing that happened was the um, this really major announcement, which turned out to be a phony announcement about China deal. With the face of that, the market should have been up hundreds of points mm -hmm. if it was at a level that was sustainable where good news could pump it higher because that's how Wall Street makes money. The fact that it ended the week slightly down on the Dow, just a tiny bit ahead on the S&P, means that the market, as much as it's trying to pump more air into these stock valuations, is running out of the ability to do so. There are certain companies, for example, which you will see, Target being one of them, by the way, who have done a really interesting job of overcoming 
the retail uh, tragedy, which ha- what's mm-hmm. happening with brick and mortar. Mm-hmm. And I was doing, a, I looked at a study on that just a couple of days ago. And one of the reasons that Target has now been successful in defying the trend of reduced revenues and reduced profits, Target's actually growing both, was because Target invested heavily a couple of years ago in cyber. Mm-hmm. So what, ta- what Target did and Walmart has done is they become a semi-cyber company. Mm-hmm. They, they, they've, they've done the link of bricks and clicks. So they have bricks and clicks together. When you do that, yeah. that's the new formula. Right. And I, I think even Nike's decision to go off of Amazon is partly because they're moving to a partly cyber model themselves. And Amazon wasn't giving them the kind of uh, user data and, and, and individual relationship with their customers that they wanted. So now they're trying to build that. Yeah. And you and also using their brick and mortar stores as their distribution network. Yeah. So I wrote a memo. Oh, gosh, 15 years ago now, called Clicks and Bricks, mm-hmm. which was the outline for how a company that was very heavily involved in the retail industry I was involved with could not only prosper in the coming times, mm-hmm. but would be one of the real winners. Yes, and yes. that memo never got adopted. That strategy never happened. Yeah. But what Target and Walmart ultimately started doing four years ago, and they never got a copy of the memo, it wasn't for them. Uh, is exactly what that memo says. Yeah. And it is working brilliantly. And, and by the way, you'll also see one other trend I want people to watch. When you see companies start on the internet and then add brick and mortar, that's not just Amazon who's done that. And by the way, Amazon's run, basically brought thousands of new retail stores online absolutely. because it's yeah. called Whole Foods. Right, right. <laughs> right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Among other things. Not to mention their distribution centers, which are popping yeah. up all but over I'm the country. But I'm just talking about pure retail, Whole Foods. Yep. Okay, and they're, and they're now doing, um, in fact, I understand the Amazon, when they moved to Santa Barbara, they're thinking about putting a, a, a retail store in their building they bought here. Oh, interesting. Yeah, in the building, okay. Because it was supposed to be offices. Anyway, so the, the reason I'm mentioning this is because in a week where the market should have had so much good news, and it ended up going down slightly, so call it sideways, I would say with incredible confidence, the market is peaking out, it will go down. It will go sideways or down almost inexorably. And I think there are a number of things I want to talk about which will cause further pressure. And you can only counter these kinds of fundamentals if you keep pumping lots of air in the tire, right? Because the tire's got leaks now. It's leaking badly. Um, so even with all the pumping they're doing, they're gonna, they'll are going they be lucky to end the yeah. year at 2% growth. And I mean, I know we're going to talk about the repo market and the continuing investment in the, the Fed. Yeah, we're in, talking in the in the economy. Well, the repo market, what they're doing, and well, yeah, let's talk about that in a second. But before I get off the repos, it's like the general fundamentals are. There's a lot of stuff that's going really wrong, and when you pump air, so everything that's going wrong is like a hole in a bicycle tire, mm-hmm. to use a metaphor. So you can keep a tire hard if you just keep pumping harder, right? But at some point, you can't because the holes you've got are bigger yeah, than your ability to keep pumping. You think of like bailing out a boat, right? As there is there, their water yeah. keeps coming in, you can if you bail, can bail fast enough, you can stay afloat until a certain point. And in the reason I use the tire example, if anybody's ever had a rubber bicycle tire, they know that a longer a tire leaks, the bigger the hole because mm-hmm. the, the 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 pressure, the pressure escaping through the hole yeah. kind of pushes on the edge of the leak. So what we have here are leaks, more leaks are happening. I'll name a few in a moment. And more pressure from the leaks we already had. So the ability to counteract that with overly stimulative, meaning inappropriate creation of liquidity, inappropriate creation of liquidity. I'm going to come back to that in a second. That can only work for so long. It's amazing. It worked all through this year, 2019, because... The sugar high from the transient tax reductions that Trump's law made it possible for corporations in the top 2% to really benefit, those um, th- that sugar high is gone. And, and we stopped feeling the effect of that probably within six months of this year. The thing that carried the economy the most was what we talked about last December when we talked about the number of cities and, municipal- cities and uh, states who were raising the minimum wage. Right. And we said that money will all get spent. It will pump up consumer spending, and that's exactly what's happened. In fact, if we have time later, I might even talk a little bit about uh, how that uh, has um, worked sure. itself up because we've seen and, so much I in mean, the way of, of that happening. And in terms of like the super strong jobs market and you know the low unemployment, most of the new jobs that have been created are in the service sector. So most yeah. of those jobs are for people making not very much money, which mm-hmm. means all of that money is getting spent. With the exception of medical. Medical went up again. Which is a whole okay. other problem because okay. we right. keep spending right. way too much on medical. <laughs> yeah, well, that's ridiculous. Well, that's a whole other 
chapter. We oh, could chapter. do an entire book but on now, that. So don't, don't forget the read books. I want to come back yeah. to that. But the reason why I wanted to start with that whole yes. topic Paul, of Paul Volcker. improper funding. Paul Volcker passed away today. Paul Volcker, and I just came up with this is my way of acknowledging who he is. He really was the father of the modern proactive Fed. Mm-hmm. When he came into the Fed, historically, the Fed has always been since first conceptualized by Hamilton. Um, the Fed through the years has been a reactive agency of government. And it it tended to look only at unemployment numbers, and it didn't look carefully at monetary supply. And what Volcker did when he came in, and uh, I believe it, I believe his last time he was in was in, nine, the first time he came in was in 1979, if I'm not mistaken. And um, yeah, August of 79. And within a little over a month, he raised interest rates twice. And a month later, he produced his famous Saturday Night Special, which was a huge package of, of, of measures to bring monetary growth back under control. Because what was happening was the, 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 monetary, the, the monetary theory of the time was don't worry about how much money's in circulation. Just keep interest rates down and mm-hmm. focus on unemployment. He said, no, you got, you got to look at the circulation. You got to look at how much money's out there because that becomes this enormous overhang, mm-hmm. which in his lifetime was the reason he was appointed because of the incredible crisis of inflation. So his basic message was the Fed would not allow the dollar to be cheapened by excessive supply. So what I just articulated is excessive supply. Mm-hmm. That's what the show began with. And so when, when Volcker who's just passed away at 92 years of age, an incredible public servant. Um, he served under four presidents, uh, Reagan, obviously Clinton. Uh, Bush. Bush. Both of them? Or? No, no. I know for sure Clinton. I know for sure Reagan, Obama. Mm-hmm. And... Well, if it was in 1979, I think it, it was... Carter. The, Carter. It was Carter. Yeah. It was Carter. So... Yeah. yeah. So, so and I, I don't know that he had official roles in the two Bush administrations. Okay. But... But nevertheless, he was he was present yeah. as a as a figure in the Fed and in how well, he was more than more than the Fed. Yeah. He was as a Volker public servant is, in in the monetary policy of America. Yeah, I would say in modern American banking theory, right. he sits in a pantheon of people who are very rare. And I'm going to talk about the Volcker rule in a moment. But even with the message and all the actions he took, and I just mentioned it, raising interest rates twice, the Saturday night specials, all that together, it took two years more than two years for inflation to finally subside. Hmm. Because, as he said at the time, when you abuse monetary theory the way it had been abused, it's really hard to bring it back under mm-hmm. control. And that's why up until now, the Fed has been much more proactive, meaning right. it doesn't wait for something to go wrong, it acts first. Well, to be lowering inflation, as any economist will tell you, lowering the um, interest rates at a time when the economy is doing well and unemployment is extremely low, it is irresponsible to the max because you know what you are doing is building it's sort of like let's say you're a skier and you know there's a certain tendency for avalanches in a particular section Mm -hmm. of mountains and you see this huge snowfall coming and somebody comes and says gee shouldn't we fire the cannon off to shake that that snow loose so it doesn't come down you go no actually let's wait and see if some more snow accumulates and then more snow accumulates and go should we should we like do something no no let's make more snow accumulate so right now if this were a mountain and that was snow accumulating, we have an avalanche about to happen. Not not just a, a mild little trickle of. Uh, I have of, to say that's a very terrifying. Terrifying. Analogy. terrifying. <laughs> I mean, I, and that's what we're doing. We're about to get buried under we're, all that snow. We're 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 you know, and, and people have been known to survive avalanches, but it's a real mess. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and, and his his approach, Volcker's pragmatic anti-inflationary monetary approach clearly set the tone for everything that's happened since 1979. Mm-hmm. And it also set the tone for what a future Fed board chairman would consider to be acceptable conduct, mm-hmm. which the current chairman, Powell, um, unfortunately is a bit of a toady, doesn't seem to have a whole lot of spine. Everybody on Wall Street knows that, mm-hmm. so they're not expecting him to do anything. And it's possible, it's entirely possible, before December's over, they'll lower the interest rates again, mm-hmm. which is... Completely insane. Right. I think I think December eleventh is the next. Yeah. The next so 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 the, the first thing that's happened that's defiled the memory and the work of Volcker is this unbelievably irresponsible redu- reduction in interest rates. Um, right now, in fact, and that and by the way, the corollary, which is the massive explosion of the debt. Mm-hmm. Okay. Remember yeah. when he helped Reagan? It was because Reagan, with his trickle down economics, caused a massive explosion of the debt, and now we got the same problem all over again. 
So we have a trillion dollar negative year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll add, the interest alone will add another trillion over the next 10 years. Uh, and there's no end in sight on any of the spending, particularly in the military. No end in, in, in sight on any of the, uh, the benefits of the tax code changes that uh, enriched to the top uh, 2% and didn't do anything for everybody else uh, except corporations. So all those put together, it's like, okay, here we have this great man, Volcker. He left us with incredible wisdom. He actually showed us under fire how to do it right. And we, a nation, are permitting our political institutions to defy logic. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, it's defying. that You can't defy gravity. Jump out of a window, you will fall. And you may feel like you're flying for the first, and you, know, mm-hmm. you jump out of a 32-story building, it might feel like you're flying for the first 30 stories. Yeah, I don't know the last ever, two are really tough. If you've ever skydived, you know, have that, you have that wonderful floating kind of feeling. You almost think you're flying, but right. you're getting closer to the earth <laughs> every second. Pull the cord of the parachute soon. <laughs> wow. Now, I want to say, and one other thing about Volcker, because he's such a towering figure and a man who we should be grateful walked the earth in our, in our lifetimes, he passed a thing called the Volcker Rule. What was the Volcker Rule? The Volcker Rule basically said, if you're going to be a financial institution, you got to keep what you do that's speculative separate from what you do with the money people deposit that's federally insured. So you keep a firewall between the two so that we won't have to bail you out. Right. Because you blow, blow the depositor money because you will, if you lose, you'll only be losing your own capital. Well, that's exactly what happened in 2008, 2009. Yeah. It's exactly what Volcker warned us about is what happened. Financial institutions collapsed because the Volcker rule was not in effect. Mm-hmm. They ended up collapsing the banks. Right. The banks then, because they were federally insured, caused the federal government to have to bail them out. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think they did it. They, they did the right thing, but the wrong way, in my humble opinion, and that they never held anybody accountable for that at the banks. And, and I believe they should have been held criminally accountable as well as civilly. Um, we learned a massive tragedy occurred, uh, the greatest recession since the Great Depression. And bad news, folks, it's about to happen again. Yeah, we're because they've up. completely gutted the Volcker rule now. Mm-hmm. Um, they're creating derivative instruments faster than you can shake a stick. Sure. That which is exactly the kind of monetary fault tomfoolery he was against. In fact, he talked when he was head of Fed. He talked about his. Dis- it was more than it was more than his concern about financial instruments and manipulation. It was it was almost to the point of disdain. It was like, don't do that. Because the problem with monetary theory, and I think you've seen this sentence I wrote in the in the book that went to the president of Europe uh, that we wrote here at the yeah, Academy. The, yeah. Uh, yeah. The missing um, link. Money well, it's on money and sustainability. Yeah. And in that first opening page, I wrote that <clears throat> like uh, war is too important to be left to generals alone, monetary theory is too important to be left to the Fed and the monetary theorists alone. <laughs> Business people need to pay attention. Right. And what's the problem is most people really don't understand monetary theory. Mm-hmm. In fact, if the people listening to this call listen carefully enough, probably want to ask a few questions if, if you're confused, you will know more monetary theory and more about what's important about monetary theory than I'm going to say 99% of the executives in America. And that's a scary thing because you shouldn't. Mm-hmm. This this one little mini lecture on monetary theory should not be enough to make you more expert than ninety nine percent of the people running our companies. But it, it mm-hmm. but you will be because the interrelationship of monetary theory and fiscal policy, which we've talked about many times, are like two blades of a scissor, and either one broken doesn't make the other one a knife. Right. It makes it a broken pair of scissors. And we're broken with both now. Both tines, and tine is the word for a blade of a scissors. Both tines of the scissors now are broken, monetary and fiscal. And you're seeing the results of that. Will the market reflect it? Absolutely, because the economy will reflect it. And that's where it gets troublesome. Now, I want to just touch briefly, because you talked about it earlier, and I want to address it, the repo market, which we talked about, I guess, several shows ago. If you notice, Mnuchin... Is pretty quiet most of the time. He does his work behind the scenes because he's a he's a maven of Wall Street. He understands how the game works. He is focused with laser-like focus on this whole issue we've been dealing with um, called the repo market because he understood as a as a denizen of Wall Street that you have to provide liquidity, particularly at this time of year, mm-hmm. in order for corporations to be able to continue to roll their debt on a daily basis. You can't run out of cash. The Fed did. Again, the chairman's pretty weak. The woman who ran the New York Fed that was supposed to be on top of it apparently is pretty weak. Nobody saw what happened, and we went three days where the repo market was in total freefall, which should never happen because 
it takes you know one phone call to change it. Right. And they didn't make the phone call. Mm-hmm. Well, the call they had to make was the Fed, uh, the New York Fed. All they had to say was, "We will stand behind the repo market." That one phone call would have changed it, and the rut would have been over. And that's exactly what they did do ultimately. Yeah, it just, it just took a long weekend. <laughs> took and a couple of days, <laughs> Monday, couple, Tuesday yeah. that week. So. So the, the repo market is going to continue to get, and they've made announcements that Mnuchin's going to stay focused on this. He's mm-hmm. not going to let them run out of cash in the repo market. So even though the Fed's not smart enough to be watching this, Mnuchin is. Mm-hmm. And he'll be calling the plays because he's right there in New York with the New York Fed. So he'll be calling in the plays, do this, do this, do this. And whether they're that good or not in New York, Mnuchin's good enough to know what to do. Mm-hmm. So although I don't like Mnuchin for a whole bunch of reasons, I think he's the right guy to be watching what could go right or wrong in the repo market. Suffice it to say, the repo market financing, which is more printing money, is a minor distraction compared to what's going on with the interest rates. Mm-hmm. So when you do both, of course, they're both inflationary. They're both, they're both promoting more circulation of currency, which, of course, is what Volcker warned mm-hmm. against. Both of them are tending to push us towards a, a calamitous overhang of snow that will end up in, unfortunately, some sort of avalanche. Hopefully, it won't be huge enough to wipe out everything below it, but a lot of skiers could get hurt. And a lot of little villagers could get hurt. Right. And a lot of little buildings could get hurt down in the village. So I just want to share that with everybody because those Volcker-related comments couldn't be more appropriate than this day when um, Paul Volcker, born in 1927, died in 2019, was perhaps the best uh, Fed chairman we've ever had, gave us the anti-inflation policies that rearranged the entire global uh, currency markets, the monetary markets, did a brilliant job, left us with a handbook. All we had to do is follow the rules. We wouldn't get in trouble. We've ignored the rules. We got in trouble, huge trouble, biggest recession since the Depression. And we're about to get into another one, which I believe will be bigger than the last recession, mm-hmm. just to put the avalanche in context. Okay, I guess that's enough good news for today. <laughs> <laughs> I want to give you one more piece of really bad news, folks. But one of the things I like to do in this show is I like to pick on subjects that are the kind of thing that if you saw it in the headline, you wouldn't want to read the article because it doesn't, your kind of eyes glaze mm-hmm. over because it tends to be kind of technical, like the monetary mm-hmm. theory stuff. Well, one of those technical things that's been going on for two years now is the intentional destruction of the WTO by the mm-hmm. Trump administration. So the WTO is the World Trade Organization. The World Trade Organization has been around for over 20 some years and is the arbiter of how free nations trade with each other and not break the rules. So it's the referee. So when you get rid of the referee, what you're saying is, I don't want anybody catching me if I yeah. foul the other players. And 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 Trump is fouling, away. fouling yeah. constantly. So, so where we are today, unfortunately, is the WTO, which has a seven-member board, uh, is now down to three members because Trump has blocked anybody being appointed to the WTO. Right. Because he's intending to get rid of it. So it's by attrition. It's going yes. to become well, inoperable. It's well, it's there because the you three need a, is you a need a quorum. You need a quorum. Three. And you need three to make us rule. And they and have they have a time a time limited tomorrow. Oh, oh okay. Two of them are so, leaving tomorrow. So the, okay. the world. This is why I'm bringing it up. The World Trade Organization, which has been of the international institutions, which have provided us with incredible prosperity over the last fifty years, <clears throat> the ones that you can count on one hand are. International Monetary Fund, the IMF, World Bank, and the World Trade Organization. Those are the three pillars of the global trading system. The global financial market. And we are a global market. Mm-hmm. So you can't go back to like, oh, well, we'll live behind our you know castle walls. Right. So well, when we hit tomorrow, the WTO will be unable to make any decisions from tomorrow on. They're already so badly hampered, they haven't been able to make money lately, but it, it becomes formal. Mm-hmm. And those two people who leave because of retirement, because of a mandatory end of term, right, exactly. will not be, a, there are no There's appointees. No Nobody's in the wings. Mm-hmm. Now, that's the kind of arcane little bit of data that most people wouldn't even pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Why I'm bringing it up is when you look at that in the context of what's going on in the China trade war, mm-hmm. which is going on, mm-hmm. continues to go on, will continue to go on, with what he's now doing to Argentina, Brazil, France. Um, where else has he done something profoundly stupid on tariffs? I, well, that's good well, enough for now. Canada, Canada, Canada and Mexico. I mean, Canada. the whole Well, Canada and Mexico, I think, is going to get solved for other reasons. Uh, but I think that you're, he's not going to solve Brazil. He's not going to solve Argentina. He's not going to solve um, the issues associated with uh, the other countries like China, mm-hmm. where we have these massive trade wars going on. Mm-hmm. And he just keeps, he stacks more trade wars on. And, and, you know, despite what he says, 
every intelligent person knows, if they care, that a tariff is a tax that we as Americans pay. Right. And to give you some idea how bad these tariffs are, he's now given back to the farmers, I believe something like 22 or $23 billion of the taxes he collected as tariffs, which is tw a little more than twice what we took to bail out the entire automobile industry on a one-time basis. And this is not a one-time basis. This will have to continue. Well, it's ongoing until it's we ongoing. resolve these things, yeah. Until our consumption cannot keep up with the tariffs that are being collected because these are taxes he's mm -hmm. passing. Mm -hmm. And these are what are called regressive taxes. They hit hardest the people who have to buy stuff to survive. Doesn't affect the guy with a yacht. No, no tariffs on yachts. Okay. So the reason I'm suggesting this is because we need to be aware of how structurally when the WTO runs out of members, which is going to happen tomorrow, and you have the other things I've mentioned that relate to what Volcker's legacy was. It's been abused. You can't, you go, okay, look, it's, there is no magical pony in here. This, this, these are fundamentals that cannot be changed. Mm -hmm. And it's not like I want to be right. It's just like there's no way this it's, could possibly come out wrong. It's just what it is. Because the pumping that, that they've been doing to make up for what should have already happened. Because it would have been much less of a problem. The recession would have been milder mm -hmm. if they let it happen 18 months ago. Mm -hmm. Um, and and if they if they hadn't done the tax the Trump tax break for the rich and the corporations, if they had to put that in effect, the recession would have been here two years ago. Mm -hmm. So they've been putting off the recession. But as you do that, like I said in my analogy of the snowfall, mm -hmm. more snow keeps falling, more snow keeps falling, and that makes the avalanche yeah. that much worse. So when I look at the recession of 2008, and I go, oh my God, this one's going to be worse. The only thing that keeps it from being worse right today is that derivative overhang is not as great as everything else. But from a fundamental point of view, it's certainly going to be a real bad one and could easily be worse. So that's the assessment that everybody needs to know. So what does that tell you? Well, uh, as everyone knows, the market's gone up, um, the Dow has gone up since December of 2018, about 14%. Um, the S&P has gone up 19%, which is impressive. Uh, oil's gone up 15%. Also impressive, and I'll come back to that in a second. And gold's gone up 17%. So of them all, the second best investment was gold. And you got to go to sleep every night not worrying about it. Mm -hmm. So if you haven't been buying gold yet, go do it now. Don't wait. Get out of the market. You are lucky. You got a 14% pop list last year on the Dow, and it didn't collapse. Uh, you have um, you got lucky on the S&P. You got a 19% pop, and it didn't collapse. I went to sleep every night not wondering or caring what the Dow or the S&P would be the next morning because I'm in gold. And I got 15.9, almost 16%. So I'm a happy camper. Uh, and I'm going to be happier in six months when gold keeps going up. Um, there's some other things that are going on, though, that you should be aware of. And particularly, I'm going to touch on it in terms of the oil issue. It appears that we are facing a situation in the relatively near future. Now, this is an interesting statistic. For the first time in the history of the United States since 1940, the United States became a crude oil net exporter. First time since 1940. That's interesting. Okay, why? Because we did that with fracking. Right. So what that means is we as the largest consumer of oil are, have removed ourselves from the demand side of the equation. Mm -hmm. We're on the supply side now. We're on the supply side. Mm -hmm. The demand side is further being impacted by the incredibly quick switch over to solar and wind and other renewable resources. And that will accelerate in 2020, regardless of what the federal government mm -hmm. does. That will accelerate. As the economy continues to decline globally, which it's doing, that means there'll be even less pressure to buy oil because mm -hmm. a declining economy means less industrial oil requirements. That said, we're looking at a point very interestingly, where the price of oil could very well be peaking out at around $50 to $60. Why? Because it costs $40 to frack it economically. Mm -hmm. So if it goes between 40 and 60, fracking will still keep happening. But I think the volume of oil, meaning 100 million barrels a day that we're doing globally, I think it's going to start coming down by 2021, mm -hmm. 2022. It's already down as a percentage of population. It's already negative. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to go negative as... It's a whole number. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to happen by 2021 at the latest. Could happen in 2020. So it's a different sort of peak oil that we've reached. It's a different kind of it's peak not, oil. It's not that we're running out of it. It's that we're moving away from it. And yeah. as an economic investment, it's not. Gonna, yeah. It doesn't have a long life. Right. And it also means, the decision reported a couple months ago, 
that the state of California's um, trustees for the University of California system declined further purchases of fossil fuel companies, not because they were making an environmental statement, but because they thought that the long-term share values of those companies was inevitably going to go down. I think what I've just said about what's happening in the global oil markets is absolute proof that they were right. Mm -hmm. I believe that you could see and will, I'd expect to see a diminution of the share prices of companies like Exxon, BP, Shell, somewhere 35 to 40% decline. And when you think of what a disproportionate impact that has on the Dow right, and on the S&P 500, holy Methuselah. <laughs> so that's a further pressure that's coming. And we don't know when it's going to hit. Now, the, the, on the positive side, countries like Russia will have an increasingly more difficult time selling oil because it's going to cost them more to pump than to sell. Mm -hmm. You will not see, and I, this is a flat statement, there will be no more deep uh, water mm -hmm. oil. It's over because you can't get it to the wellhead cheap enough. There will be no more um, oil from difficult places like the Arctic. So although people will do test drilling, they won't be pumping it because it won't pay. And I believe we are now on a long-term inexorable, meaning unavoidable, alteration of the value of oil company stocks. I personally have been saying for years, I think the stocks have got 50% water, 50% oil, because just to relate to people, yeah. the way oil stocks are valued is by what are called proven reserves. A proven reserve means a barrel of oil in the ground that they can economically pump. But they're using as what could be economically pumped the wrong standard. Mm -hmm. If they're using $40 a barrel, the answer is those proven reserves are probably at least 40% overstated mm -hmm. and, or worse. Uh, the one country that's going to benefit, by the way, in all this is Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has the best oil, like crude. And it has it's, the cheapest cost. It's easy. It's, it's easy the easiest. To get to it. Although, if you noticed, and I think people didn't, they should, when they just, when the Crown Prince just finally sold uh, one and a half percent of Aramco, he had been hoping for a two point five billion, two point trillion, two point five trillion dollar valuation. He then fought like a bugger for a year to see if he could keep it at two trillion. He could not. He eventually settled on one point seven trillion as right. valuation, and to get that number. He could only sell it in Saudi right. Arabia. Right. He couldn't put it on a public market exchange. He wasn't because it wouldn't have gone. Yeah. Right. So he sold it to, Saudi, to, his, to, his, to his basically his subjects. Mm -hmm. um, I think they will come to feel like that was a hidden tax eventually. But right. be that as it may, that's right. the, and, and they will be the long-term beneficiary. Okay. I want to talk about a couple of things really quickly that, um, that are too important not to touch on here at this year end. Um, uh, and then we're going to go on the Jones Act. Um, other things that are going to affect the economy is the amount of political instability going on. Mm -hmm. So uh, when you go through the list of where things are broken, Afghanistan, totally broken, totally broken. Uh, if they want, write me a question, I'll tell you what that means. But basically, we're going to be pulling out of Afghanistan. We can't keep a lid on it. The government there is a fiction. Uh, it's corrupt, and it's not being able to replace the whole, us. The whole enterprise has been the whole a disaster enterprise from disaster. the very first day. And for those who haven't seen it, there's been a great report that just came out today. I think the Washington Post published it as a subject to a three-and-a-half-year uh, legal battle on a freedom of information request showing how we've been lied to for 18 years about the war in Afghanistan, how, in fact, it was always we were always losing it, and we were lied to repetitively that we were winning. Mm -hmm. And why I find that fascinating is that's exactly what the Pentagon Papers said about the Vietnam War. Right. In hindsight, we know mm -hmm. the Pentagon Papers were correct. This report that the Post published, just so people will know, came from an official government tribunal that engaged in massive numbers of interviews of everybody involved. And they wanted to find out what went wrong and why, mm -hmm. to learn for next time. And what they found out is that the biggest thing that went wrong is the government persistently, under both Bush and Obama, lied, 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 and those lies are continuing to the present day. With Trump. So three presidents in a row have lied to the American public, and that's what's caused us to lose two trillion in direct costs, probably another trillion in medical support costs over the next 30 years with all the PTSD, the prosthetic devices, the VA costs, etc. Now, in addition to that, though, you got things like places that most people don't even know exist, like Suriname, where a military court just convicted the country's president, uh, who's about to get reelected, and no one thinks it'll be a fair election. And that there's going to be some violence potentially over that. Um, Finland's prime minister, normally Finland, a very stable country, right? Only prime minister for six months, going to have to step out of office because of a corruption um, investigation. By the way, I saw that they have a new prime minister 
I think today. Yeah. Okay. As a young woman, a 34-year-old woman. Probably because this was I'm I'm, yeah. I'm referencing a, the story came out on December 6th that he would be gone and today's right. the night, so that's why. Um, I'm going to talk about Bolivia and Evo Morales, uh, which is a complete, incredible struggle going on. Uh, he's he's exiled. Uh, the indigenous people there, even though they're the ones who paid the biggest price for his um, 14 years he was president, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did a great job for them at first, but at the end of the day, they're paying the biggest price and they're barricading all the roads in the country just to, to try and keep so the pressure on the government to bring it back, which they will not do, because he was trying to become a lifelong right. president, a which is a king. Despotic. Yeah. Um, France, more than 800,000 workers. So mm-hmm. those are teachers, rail workers, and hospital staff have marched off in protest. That's a huge number of people. Um, the um, and That's a general strike now at this point. If you look at what's gone on with what Turkey's been doing in Syria, look at Syria itself. Uh, and then you look at places like um, China. So we continue to be, we continue to deal with the situation in Hong Kong. Everybody's aware of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that they're aware that in the recent elections that were held in Hong Kong for local officers, which China, Hong Kong Chinese are allowed to vote, something like almost 80% went of, for the pro democracy. Went wing. for the pro democracy, yeah. yeah. So this is a very popular uprising. It's not, mm-hmm. not just a few students. And I noticed that there was a demonstration yesterday in Hong Kong that the demonstration was so long, it lasted miles. Wow. And um, the Chinese are very, very, they, they don't know what to do. Xi is a very hard, ham-fisted dictator for life because he's got himself approved for life mm-hmm. now, which is unusual in China. Not since Mao has that happened. And he's got himself into a pickle. Mm-hmm. And my question is, what will he do about that pickle? And will, he, will violence follow in Hong Kong, which, of course, is one of the major money centers in the world? Another one of those money centers, no, I'm just still going through my list of horribles here. I haven't gotten, I'm, I'm not out of them yet. I've, I've got more. Brexit is coming up on Thursday. Whether or not uh, Boris Johnson wins, defined as gets returned as prime minister, means he has to win not only the popular vote in terms of the, 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 um, the number of, they call them ridings, but they're like their congressional district, the number of ridings that he has to collect in order to be able to be reappointed by the parliament as the prime minister. There's a question whether even if he succeeds at that hurdle, he will have enough people even in his own party that he can put together to push the Brexit deal through he wants to put through, which is a no-exit Brexit, uh, hard Brexit, so-called. Britain's going through amazing turmoil. If you didn't see it, folks, and I'm sure that you probably listen to this show in part so that I have to read The Economist and you don't, but The Economist, uh, the cover was just brilliant. Britain's nightmare before Christmas. It's a snowman that looks like... Uh, like looks like John, Boris Johnson on the right, and a very a scary, dilapidated scarecrow snowman to the left, which is Jeremy Corbyn, obviously. Mm-hmm. And people are cheering about it, and, and like it's like, oh my God, it's a nightmare. And then you got this guy here, right here, Nigel Farage, right in the lower right hand corner, who's the father of Brexit. Now, Nigel Farage was interviewed, and I'm going to end my list of four. By the way, I I got more. I, oh, I can keep going. We can go on, but we, don't, we don't have that much time. Right well, on. you know, and, and we do have an impeachment going on in the United States that should <laughs> yeah. not go unnoticed. But my point of all that was... Talk about political instability. Talk right. about political instability. Uh, and talk about, you know, international crime. But anyway, the reason why I mentioned it is because Nigel Farage was interviewed on Sunday by Fareed Zakaria. And Fareed accounted him, which I think he should, the title of father of Brexit. And he mm-hmm. claimed that title. He thinks he is the father of Brexit. And one of the questions, it was an interesting interview, because Nigel Farage is a very telegenic, charismatic speaker. He's humorous, uh, and he's a pretty crazy guy. Anyway, he ended up with a very interesting uh, comment that he was, the reason behind Brexit was because he believed in the theory of national sovereignty, that that's what he was trying Mm -hmm. to restore, Mm -hmm. and that that has an inherent value. It's like, you're good to your family, you're good to your neighbors, you're good to your country, these aggregations of countries like NATO, although he's for NATO, it turns out, but the EU are not things he finds attractive. Right. Now, why is that important? Because we are in a period of time where the breakdown of national states is what I just listed. Uh-huh. Okay. If you look at Brexit succeeding, it means Europe's been cracked badly. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you look at Brexit as failing, what you're going to see is a country UK in unbelievable turmoil because so many of the people 
don't understand the consequences of Brexit. Um, and when you go through the list of all the other countries I just gave, and I didn't give them all, I didn't even talk about Brazil, which has mm -hmm. gone to dictatorship, military, mm -hmm. it's heading towards military dictatorship, by the way. Um, and I didn't talk about the, cra the craziness and crisis in Argentina. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other countries I could pick on, but I won't. What I wanted, the point I wanted to make, and then we can wrap this out of the part of the show up, is with all that happening, to put your money on the future and say the future is shoring up sovereign national sovereign states is insane. It's insane. And 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 you will see that China is going to continue to have unbelievable pressure at the periphery. I'm not sure China will remain politically stable for more than 10 years, if that long. And I can explain why. Please write me a question, folks. I'll explain why. There's a lot of evidence coming to the fore on that. And it's not just Hong Kong. It's not just the Uyghurs. It's not just what they've been doing in Tibet. It's not just what they've been doing in the West. It's all of it and the fact they're running out of water. And when anybody runs out of water, they get really ugly and nasty pretty fast. Mm. And they are running out of water in China because of climate change. And then I want to just touch real briefly, of course, on one of my favorite democracies, the largest democracy in the world, India. So as many of you know, we've been tracking the progress of the glacier at the headwaters of the Ganges for probably 12 years now. And I just got a report, another report, an update on it just a couple of days ago. Um, I'm going to say with unfortunate confidence that the reduction of water flow in the Ganges will be perceptible and frightening within 10 years or less. I thought we might get to 2035. Don't think so anymore. It's, the glacier is receding much too fast. So it's a 2030 problem. Yeah. And uh, that's going to cause massive dislocation. This is the Ganga, Ganga tree. Uh, yeah, glacier. Yeah. glacier. So, uh, and if people want to know how you how do you how do you analyze the impact of a glacier melt on a river like the Ganges, is you look at where the headwaters are, and and and, uh, and happy. I wish I would get questions on this stuff that I can go into greater detail, but we don't have questions on it for today, so we're not going to go into further. Now, I wanted to do um, the Jones Act, uh, Benji. How many minutes have I got left? I got about six minutes left. Sixteen. Okay. Okay. So the the just before we move into the next bit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my head is spinning a little bit on all of these negative indicators on the global political, uh, geopolitical stage, which I think is really important to, to bring out. But it's, it's also, it's sort of a capstone. I think Volcker was also a, he understood the, the global nature of the economy. Oh, yeah. And I that mean... was one of the things that is sort of seems like that's being blown up by all of these all of these nations these places that are trying to get back to the sort of the the nation state the sovereign sovereignty it's they're they're trying to disconnect themselves on an economic yeah exactly. level. trying to it's, you, you can't know? you can't turn the clock back right and so i think that's that's at the, at the yeah. core people should remember what followed the roman empire was 6 to 800 years of going backwards mm -hmm. So could you build a castle and retreat to it? Yes, really ugly. Mm -hmm. People in Rome lived better than the people in the castles. And eventually, as you know, led to the bubonic plague because the de the denseness of the people in, in those mm -hmm. castles. So when you look at um, the future, and I'm glad you raised Volcker again, because Volcker in retirement uh, in his 80s, because he, he saw himself as setting a tone for the Fed that would always have a monetary implications globally. Right. And he, he wanted the Fed to be right. the leader. Uh, in response to a question about whether the U.S. was going to continue to be the dominant influence in the global economy and the global monetary field, he uh, opined that it probably would not. However, for anything he could see in the future, everyone would still want to have a lot of America's lead towards those solutions. So we wouldn't control them the way we did in 1950, 60, and 70. Right. But we would still be a vo an extraordinarily important voice of reason. Mm -hmm. To balance it all up. Which, and that's exactly what has, we, we've been evaporating that. Yes. In the last, so the one the thing last he three said, years. You see, know? the one thing he, no one saw coming was Trump, including right. the founding father. Right. No, no one thought they'd get a trifecta like Trump. So Volcker, even in his 80s, feeling good about what he accomplished, were he alive today, would say, oops, no, they're not going to want to hear from us. Right. And what does that mean? And thank goodness for his sake that he died before he had to write what conclusions. I mean, even the the laughing, the you know, the the leaders laughing at the NATO at the what was the conference last week? NATO conference. The NATO, NATO, 70, the NATO, yeah, 70th, 70th anniversary of right, NATO. Uh, you know, and and, and that was painful. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to. I'll tell you what. Since I got another few minutes, I'm going to before I go to Jones Act, I want to then quickly touch on something that is working. 
that we talked about. Oh, good. I want to hear something we positive. We talked about <laughs> this many times. That the you know that I mentioned it earlier in the show today. When you raise the minimum wage, you actually are putting more money into people's pockets who will spend it. When you give money mm-hmm. to a billionaire, he's not going to spend it because he already got his job. Or hurry up. So um, we dug out a couple of case studies of where now we have can prove across the globe that. Giving money to the poorest of the people in your society actually makes more money. So a direct uh, economic um, aid program in Kenya, of all places, found that for every dollar in cash aid to the poor, increased economic activity by $2.60. So we've been talking about this for four years now since Seattle first proposed it. We said, no, no, Seattle will do better if it raises the average wage before anybody else does the livable wage of $15 an hour because they'll spend it in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened. Um, in this particular case, 10,500 families were randomly assigned, uh, and they did a very thorough analysis. I'm not going to read all the data, but the bottom line is it, um, uh, it, it was a big, big success. We know that um, Stockton, California, wanted to do an experiment in the livable uh, wage. And so they, they did, for 18 months, they gave each citizen $500 per month to see what people would do with that money. Uh, and what it turns out is it not only generated a tremendous amount, um, so about 40% of the basic income has been spent on food, 24% on sales and merchandise, 11% on utility bills, and 9% on car repairs and gas. All of the money went back out. And because right. of what's called the multiplier effect, which was explained on the show many times, because of the multiplier effect, that $500 per month is actually generating probably, I'm going to guess, at least $2,500 per month in benefit. In, in economic yeah. activity. In, 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 and these are people who weren't, they were not not working people. And they didn't, no, nobody gave up their jobs. No, no, no. But some of them didn't have jobs. It was a right. universal minimum wage kind of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. But it didn't matter. I mean, the, the subjects were working part or full-time jobs and they're making a median wage of about $46,000. Yeah. And so, uh, and a similar, by the way, <clears throat> example happened in Manitoba, Canada in the 70s where a basic income structure was put in place, an 8.5% reduction in the rate of hospitalizations and doctor visits. Yeah. Um, so it, Stockton, it of course, is the largest city in the country. Yeah, yeah. And it declared bankruptcy in 2012. Stockton. Right. So it's so very this is an interesting, interesting comeback. Yeah. It's just, I think that's something to really think about and, and watch. And, and by and, the way, they did it with an unemployment rate of 7.5% double the national average, mm-hmm. more than double. So I think that's all really important and worth knowing. Now, we've been talking about the Jones Act. It's time. What is the Jones Act? I mean, I mean, does anybody listening to this know what the Jones Act is? That's a, that's a test question. And before you have to say yes or no, I'll be happy to share the results. <laughs> so the Jones Act was a very a well-intentioned, one would say, in some ways, but very protectivist measure mm-hmm. that was adopted in the 20s um, uh, to require that any um, ship that wanted to go between two U.S. ports had to be a U.S flag carrying ship. The merchant ships. Merchant ships, okay. So that was called the Merchant Marine Act of 1920. And the idea was it would keep our merchant marines strong. It would keep merchant marine sailors in large numbers available to man our ships. And we would have ships and in the event of war, we would be able to turn those ships into lifelines of of support. Well, the bottom line is that the Jones Act, because it's like a lot of things that have been around too long, I think it might have done some good at one point. But it's completely crazy at this point. Mm-hmm. First of all, there aren't even that many sailors left. You know, mm-hmm. it's like the entire Jones Act is left to protect 90,000 people total in the U.S., if that. U.S. sailors. They're all coming from the Philippines and yeah, but with, Nepal. I mean, all of, most of the boats that, <laughs> that are being run are now yeah, crewed get, by non-Americans. Right, but they're under American flags. And Some the theory them, was, yeah. two theories. One, you'd have people demand the Merchant Marine Force, mm-hmm. which was considered... Back at the time when navies were critical, mm-hmm. whereas now I would say air forces were critical. When navies were critical to world domination mm-hmm. and war, um, the idea of having your own ships and your own people was great. Well, the, the it was easy to get around whether or not you had to be an American citizen. You can get a job without you could get a job without being an American citizen, I believe, on an American merchant marine vessel. Although I believe that's been tightened recently. Mm-hmm. Um, the other so it wasn't. Strictly about employment, but it was. Right? It was like, let's keep those union halls open, folks. The second reason they did it was they wanted to require the ships to be built in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Because without a U.S. hull, it's very hard to get U.S. flagged. And you'd have to pay a lot of money when you do it because U.S. flagging has an expense curve that is dramatically higher than Liberia or 
Right, or the Marshall Philippines Islands. or the Marshall uh, Islands or whatever. All these places. So there are only 99 ships left in America that are Jones Act qualified. 99. We're not building anymore. No. We, our, our shipyards are not capable of building modern merchant marine They're vessels. They're closing down. I mean, it, it's not economical. It, no, it's, it's crazy. It, it, we don't have that kind of capacity. Yeah, they, they, we lack, to quote the U.S., I'm going to quote this, the U.S. Maritime Advisor testified this year, quote, U.S. commercial shipyards lack the scale, technology, and the large volume series building order books to compete internationally, close quote. So this protectionist idea, um, by the way, shipbuilding, I think, in the U.S. started dropping in 1980, late 70s, early 80s, and has continued to drop every year mm-hmm. since then. Okay, so is it doing any harm? The answer is yes. Yeah. So we just went through a thing in Puerto Rico. Yeah, that yeah, we couldn't deliver. We couldn't the deliver goods. the goods because we don't have enough ships, and going between Miami and Puerto Rico is considered between two domestic ports. Right. So this has been a crazy thing. Now I happen to be familiar with the Jones Act for a bunch of reasons, including because I've had a home in Hawaii for thirty-seven years. And when you live in Hawaii, you quickly learn that a cruise ship cannot go from California to Hawaii. It has to stop at an island they buy just offshore of Hawaii, which is in international waters. And then they come. And wow. the only exception to that is one shipyard, uh, which is not doing well financially. Uh, it, it is flagged American. And its only uh, voyage is it goes around the islands. It's sort of like a, sort of like a, it's, it's like a, di- a ride at Disneyland. Mm-hmm. It's not particularly well ri- uh, run, by the way. People don't like it. The food's terrible. The service is worse. It's, it's, it's like a third world experience because you have to go on an American ship with American crew and all you're doing is hopping around the Hawaiian Islands because you don't have to go anywhere because it can go port to port to port. Whereas the, the ships that want to go, you know, Crystal Cruises, Princess, Royal Caribbean, right. they would bring tons of people to Hawaii if you could just go straight from somewhere to Hawaii. Now, you can go straight from Vancouver to Honolulu. You can go from... Uh, but you can't go from Seattle to Honolulu. Okay. Okay. You can go from Vancouver to Honolulu, but you can't then go from Honolulu to Kona. Okay. So it's a really silly rule. Mm-hmm. It's hurting us badly because in times of national crisis, like Puerto Rico, we don't have access to the global fleet. Right. Okay. Number two, it's a bad idea because to try to maintain the few jobs left for the merchant, and, and, and it's not like young boys and girls are flocking to join the merchant marine. No. It's no longer considered a, a good occupation for a lifetime, where it was back in the 20s when that law was passed. And even if you could have made a case as late as 1980 that the Jones Act had some value, when you look at all the things that it costs us and you go, it's got no value, and look at the expense, it's like one of those things, that just, it's got to go. Mm-hmm. And what's funny is, and then I'm going <laughs> to end this Jones commentary on this, it's one of the places where the Republicans and the Democrats, I think, agree. In fact, the Democrats would like to get rid of it, too. They have a little union pressure, but I think they're going to back that off. And the Republicans want to get rid of it just on general principles. So it might be one of those rare things where they actually can get it done, even in this crazy political situation. And if not, when the political situation stops being crazy, I think it will end. And it's it's way, way overdue. Um, Okay. With that, uh, in the last few minutes we've got left, I want to just talk a little bit about uh, the um, situation with climate change. So, um, as you know, uh, the president, uh, Donald Trump, uh, refused to go or let anybody in his administration head down to um, the talks that we just had in Madrid, Spain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And those talks were designed to update the Paris Accords. Right. So, we are the only country that has dropped out, as far as I know. I think I think we're the only country in in the world that's not part of the Paris Climate Agreement any longer. Well, actually, we are technically still there, even though he's formally okay. announced he's retiring. Okay. And it turns out that the decision to withdraw cannot take effect until the middle of January twenty twenty one. Right. So yeah. Right. Right. So all through twenty twenty, we'll be dealing with the effects of our government not participating mm-hmm. with why the EPA passes more and more stupid rules to make our water less safe, our air less clean, and our our overall uh, health diminished. Our food. Our food. Our food I mean, all the things yeah. that they're ruining on us. My God. But with all that said, at least we had a high-ranking delegation led by Speaker Pelosi to Madrid, mm-hmm. and what we said in that high-ranking delegation was. We are committed as a nation, despite this administration, to maintaining or beating the Paris Accord numbers. 
And when she made that statement, Pelosi, she was talking not only about the political will of the Congress, which is called the People's House, but she was also talking about business. And as you know, we've talked many times on this show, business is doing a great job of bringing its carbon footprint down and is going to do better. Now, it would have been dramatically better with a favorable administration, would be dramatically better if stupid rules didn't get suggested, like suing California because our cars are going to be too clean, right? I mean, right. that whole thing is <laughs> dipsy-do, I can't believe. And I think the Toyota and General Motors are going to rue the day they agreed to side with the Trump administration on that policy. Um, not only has the state of California said they will not purchase a vehicle now from those two companies and any other company that signed to that they wanted to roll back the California standards. And I know why they did it. They did it because they wanted to negotiate an interim standard that would be halfway between where we were and where, where we are today. And that's not a good reason. The California standards can be met. Toyota knows they can be met. General Motors knows they can be met. Chrysler knows they can be met. And certainly uh, Nissan, uh, Renault, Fiat, and other European manufacturers know it can be met. So what we've done is put ourselves in a situation where we've given a false hope to GM that they can keep selling cars in America that are dirty. And the answer is GM's going to learn out that's not true. GM's going to continue making them to California standards. You can be sure of that. And all things are going to blow by the boards eventually. But in the meantime, GM's going to spend billions of dollars chasing what is a dirtier exhaust pipe. Because when they're developing cars to be out in the market five, six years from now, they're looking at what the standards will be five or six years from now. And they're, they're going to have to design on two levels. Mm-hmm. And that means that their, their, their R&D costs are going to double. Double, right. Now, I think Toyota's less of a concern for other reasons, but Toyota's going to have the same problem. And I know I signed a petition, uh, actually two of them this week, where I said, and I'm, I've owned numerous Toyotas. I've owned a couple of Priuses. I've owned my current Toyota Mirai. Uh, and I basically signed a petition saying, I will not purchase another Toyota vehicle, even a hydrogen vehicle, as long as they maintain this policy. I, and I won't, certainly won't buy another GM. I have had GM vehicles. I have one right now my wife has. And I had a Volt a couple years ago. I, I will not buy another General Motors car. And I'm hoping the environmental community says the same thing. I really hope they do. So my advice to everybody out there is, you know, so much... We have to buy lots of Nissan Leafs and Teslas. Yeah, what about Tesla? But Nissan Leafs for sure. Tesla have a problem because of the the battery. But the Nissan Leaf, I think there's other choices out there. But I just, you know, BMW's got a very nice little electric car now. Mm -hmm. Um, I just want to say that in closing, we talked about all these geopolitical points of insanity. We talked about the craziness in the international monetary system. We talked about political instability around the globe. And there are so many of those things that as an individual, it's hard to affect. But there's this old saying, just because you can't do everything doesn't mean you can't do anything. What you can do by the grace of God, you ought to do. Mm -hmm. So I would urge everybody listening, write Toyota, write General Motors. Tell them you will boycott them. You will not purchase their vehicles unless they get back in line. Mm -hmm. They volunteered to meet the California standards. They were on track to meet them. And the short-term profit incentive should not unduly influence their decision. And I want to add one other reason you can add to your letter, folks, when you send it to them or your email. Point out that the global market for cars, for automobiles, is going to be dropping within five to six years. Meaning you're going to find, because of things like ride sharing, Mm -hmm. autonomous vehicles, and other dramatic shifts occurring in the marketplace, including the move to electric, that um, I believe the total global automobile manufacturing will be on a downward trend mm-hmm. starting in a couple of years and continuing indefinitely. And as a uh, disruptive uh, uh, Tony Seavey, the, 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 gosh, he's, uh, what do you call a guy? He's a researcher, I guess. A, yeah, T- Tony sort of a futurist. I yeah, some of, and, and, you know, and what he's saying is since the, uh, if you look at the Easter parade of 1900 mm-hmm. and you look at all the horses on the street, if you you got to look really hard. There's if you really really scan, it's like a Where's Waldo. There's one automobile, one car, right? And if you look at 2020, you got to look really hard. There's only one horse. I don't think it was even that long. I think it was like it was in the in the 15s or something. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. It was short period. Ten time. years, one decade. Dramatic make, makes a huge yeah. difference. And Tony Seba is the one who's predicting the end of the current volume of of automobile construction. Right. The, the certainly of ICE vehicles. Of, uh, of, combustion right. Yes, absolutely. Going back to this in Santa Barbara, for example, that article that came out, I think, last week in the New York Times about 
having free parking as an indicator of how many cars you have on the road. Mm -hmm. And if we got rid of the free parking here in Santa Barbara or the very cheap parking, that would have a huge impact in the number of actual vehicles coming in and out of Santa Barbara. I wonder. I mean, I saw that article. I'm, yeah. I, that's, that's one that would be worth worth checking. But um, because there's, a, there's another wrinkle that happens in that. Right now, it's clear, and I just advocated to the city council recently, that uh, we should no longer be requiring parking spaces to build right. housing. Right. Because people can can walk away from it. So I think there's, and by the way, maybe we should like, like maybe make a little microcosm of Santa Barbara and talk about it in a future show. But for right now, I'd like to end the show by saying have a great uh, holiday season, however you celebrate it. Uh, Kwanzaa or Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Christmas, solstice, solstice, or you just want a day off and you're an atheist. It doesn't matter to me. The goal is enjoy the holiday season. Try and um, for sure take Optimus Daily to help give you a daily dose of optimism that you're going to need. I hope you listen to Solutions News broadcast. We'll continue to keep that very positive. None of this negative stuff leaks into that show, uh, without at least without a solution added to it. And uh, thank you for listening this year. Uh, it's been a, a rare privilege really, and a joy to do this program with you, Christy, and Benjamin all the, this year. And um, we've been doing it nine years now, I think. Every single one's still on file. And uh, I'm really excited about what we did because we started Solutions News this year. It's been a great year there. for You two guys have been all there for us to do that. And so I just want to wish everybody a happy holiday season and to let you know that as discouraging as a lot of stuff is, I'm certainly not giving up. I'm hoping that, um, that somehow the better angels of our nature will eventually take over and will begin to create the future we want to live in rather than the future that is quickly advancing on us in a very negative way. And with that, I do wish you a very happy holiday. And uh, I want to extend my belief that we are capable of solving every one of these issues. Uh, but we better focus on it, folks, because if we don't do it at the level of individuals, I don't think it's going to get done. So it's up to us. We are the people we've been waiting for. We are. Thank you, everyone.